Um, back, in, uh, back in September 2018, um, a new um, FIC, I think commission as well, church plant was launched in London. Part of the, the core team of that church plant were a young couple called Toby and Millie, um, both, in their, both in their 20s. They got married the year before. Um, they, were, they were devoted to one another. They were committed and gifted uh, Christians who were passionate about reaching out to the, the part of London that they were, they were planting in. Uh, they were an integral part of uh, the church planting team. It was just getting uh, established. Six or seven months into the, the church plant, they went away on holiday to, to Greece where the car that they were traveling in fell headlong into a 200-meter ravine, and sadly, they both lost their lives. Um, and when we hear stories like that, perhaps some of us know them, when we hear stories like that of kind of young lives tragically cut short, we cry out, why? Don't we? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why? And, and I guess that why question is a question that all of us probably, most of us, have asked certainly at some point in our lives. Some of us ask it maybe over some fairly trivial matters. <laughs> Others of us have asked it uh, following events way more tragic and painful. Why? Um, and, and of course, uh, when loss or suffering comes our way, it's quite natural, isn't it, to ask why? But when Christians ask why, it just might be accompanied with a bit of guilt. Have you ever felt that? We wonder, maybe, at the back of our minds, whether it's even right to ask the question. Do you know what I mean? Should I be questioning God? Is it appropriate to kind of, you know, put God in the dock, so to speak, ask him to give an, an answer? Is that, is that even something I should be doing? Am, am I being unspiritual in some way? Is it a sign of, of, of weakness? Is it a sign of not trusting him or a sign of kind of spiritual immaturity or something? Should I just resign myself, as it were, to keep calm and carry on, just, just put on a brave face and a, and a stiff upper lip? And certainly in Christian circles, I mean, would it be unhelpful to others if I were to let my emotions show a bit or let on that I was struggling? When we come to the Bible, I reckon we get a healthy dose of realism when it comes to questions like that. Um, because I, I think we see in the Bible, writer after writer pours out his heart to God and book after book finds believers questioning God. And sometimes very, very seriously indeed. But you especially find it in the Psalms, don't you? Because as we found out in this little sort of series through the summer, we get the whole range, don't we, of both human circumstances and also human emotions in, in the Psalms. We, we see everything from deep joy to deep suffering. And, and as we read the Psalms, we find that it's, it's not at all spiritual or, or godly to keep our emotions hidden. And, and especially from God. In, in fact, it's a mark of a, of a godly man or a godly woman to come to God, to, to, be, to be absolutely honest with him and lay our deepest concerns before him. And not just our joys, but our pains as well, our, our frustrations, even our angers. 
And so psalms like this, I think, are good for our souls so that we can see how godly believers of the past have dealt with deep pain and loss. So they're very instructive, I think, for for us, of course. And I think that's definitely the case here with Psalm 102. Again, as with Psalm 95 that we looked at last week, we don't really know who wrote the psalm. Uh, We don't even know for sure what caused the psalm to be written. It's possible that the author is writing in the aftermath of the the fall of Jerusalem and and, uh, God's people being um, exiled, given what he says about the city in the middle section of the psalm. You'll see that in a bit. Um, And and that, of course, would certainly be a time, wouldn't it, of of unparalleled uh, loss uh, and suffering for, for God's people, of course. But we do know how the psalmist is feeling don't we? We can see that right at the start. Actually, in the title of the psalm, it's a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint or his lament before the Lord. So here's a guy who is at his wit's end. Okay, He's afflicted and pouring out his lament, his complaint before the Lord. And although we won't find all the answers that we might want to the why question here in the, the psalm, I think we can take away some comfort. I think we can take away some encouragement as we see a man who's honestly kind of wrestling with God and as we see God's remedy for that man's suffering soul. Here's three things that I'd love us to notice um, in the psalm. Firstly, I think you've got a desperate cry for help uh, in verses 1 to 11. Then you've got a deep hope in God expressed in verses 12 to 22. And finally, you've got a definite answer to prayer in verses 23 to 28. So have a look firstly with me at uh, um, verses 1 to 11, if you've got the, uh, the psalm open there. Notice his desperate cry for help. You, you can just see in these verses, can't you, how much suffering this guy is experiencing. Did, did, you, did you note how many things he's complaining about? So you've got physical pain, haven't you, in verse 3. My days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. It's like my bones are on fire, he says. You know, maybe he's got a fever, maybe he's got joints, joints and bones in, in agony, but he's not in a good way physically. Is he's in a lot of pain physically. And verses 4 and 5, look, his pain means that he can't eat, right? He's, he's lost his appetite. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. So his heart, as well as his body, is, is withering. He's not eating his food. He's wasting away skin and bone. Um, and then look in verses 6 and 7, he, he, he says he's feeling... Uh, loneliness and isolation as well. I'm, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. So he, f- he feels like an owl, he says, you know, kind of up half the night and, a, and alone, <laughs> desperate for company. And of course, friends, any kind of illness, we know this, don't we? Whether it's physical or spiritual or psychological, it can be very isolating, can't it? And this guy feels that. And it's being compounded by, by, by sleepless nights. And, you know, when you're tired already, it's awful to have insomnia, you know, on, on top of that, isn't it? Just hours and hours and hours spent lying awake, wishing you could sleep, you know, desperately hoping for, for sleep to come or, or failing that for morning to come. That's how this guy feels. We can probably identify with that, can't we? But look, there's more because in verse 8, 
He says that he feels the pain of, of antagonism. He's, he's feeling the trauma of being taunted all the time by his enemies. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. And, and friends, you know, when you're feeling down, you know, when you're feeling fragile, you want people to cut you some slack and treat you gently, don't you? But this guy is just getting a hard time all round. There's, there's no let up. And, and, and worst of all is the, is the spiritual isolation he felt. Look, verse 9. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that he feels like God is angry with him. Right? He feels sort of tossed aside by God, like, a, like an old rag. You know, he feels let down. He feels rejected, like, like God has broken his promises in some way, or, or, or like he doesn't care. It's actually quite extraordinary language, isn't it? You know, coming from a believer. I wonder whether you would ever allow yourself to say things like that to God? Would you give voice to the kind of darkest thoughts like that? And tell God that you thought he'd, he'd sold you short? Or, or, or tell God that he's, you think he's failed to come through for you? That's how you feel when, when you needed him most? It's quite astonishing language there. But that's what the psalmist is thinking, isn't it? You've taken me up and thrown me down, verse 10. Uh, and it's caused depression to set in. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. That's how he feels. Now, it, it, it might be for, for some of us that we find those kind of feelings, that kind of language, um, you know, addressed to God quite, quite shocking. Well, I'd, I'd never say those things to God. But actually, the, the reality is that the words are right here. And, and actually, not only here, but, but words like this, language like this, is used right, right through the Psalms and, and in other parts of Scripture as well. Those kind of brutally honest confessions of pain um, and, and suffering, those almost accusations against God, they're not uncommon in the Bible at all. And, and, and if we take a step back, I, I think that kind of desperate cry for help can teach us a couple of important lessons and, and the first is that, that we need to have a right approach to God because we might mistakenly think that we can't express our pain to God we can't express our frustration to him that that's not the kind of the done thing you know to express hurt or to express disappointment to him but but whilst it's not probably healthy to be doing that all the time there are other things we need to do as we'll, as we'll see Yet the fact remains that it's, it's sometimes it's good for our souls to express with honesty to God how we're feeling. To tell him that we're at our wit's end or that we're feeling let down or, or, or that we're in great pain or whatever it is. I mean, after all, how, how many of the feelings that the psalmist is experiencing here um, have, have you experienced as well? Probably quite a few of them, right? They're not, I don't think they're particularly rare feelings here, are they? Intense physical pain, right? So bad you feel your bones are on fire, right? Or sleeplessness or loss of appetite, yeah? Or psychological pain or spiritual pain or loneliness or isolation. They're actually quite common emotions, aren't they? 
And the psalmist brings them to God. Because he knows that God is able to take them. Just look at how he puts it in verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me and answer me speedily in the day when I called. Do you feel the the pain there, the, the desperation? This man needs help, doesn't he? And he's willing to bring all of that pain and hurt to God and and lay it before him. However tough the words, I think that's quite bold, isn't it? We might say audacious even. Do, Do you think we'd have the courage to do that? And trust him enough to know that he's able to take it? And he's loving enough to to hear us out? The psalmist does that here. Right? He he brought his his catalogue of pain to the Lord. And, and I think he was right to, to do so, wasn't he? But, but as well as having the right approach to God, I think the second thing we can learn here from this, this cry for help is to have the right understanding of God. Because if there's one thing the psalm clearly reminds us of here, it, it's that believers are not exempt from pain. Okay, we don't have an opt-out clause from suffering. You know, we live in a world that for now is a world where evil and suffering happens. And for whatever reasons, but but reasons that God has determined, he allows his people to endure times of great pain uh, as well. And, And of course the trouble, friends, is that we live in a society that doesn't like pain to be thought of as normal. Do we? And it, it does everything it can indeed to try and avoid pain or get rid of pain. You know, what I think one of the consequences of um, the advances we, we see in things like medicine and technology and, and the wealth to access that in, here in the West is that we're tempted to assume that we can go through life facing little or no pain or suffering. You know, our expectations, I think, in this generation are huge now in that, in that area. I, I think our response to the pandemic probably highlighted that. And, and even in the face of death, we want to try and stave it off for as long as possible. We think that death is the worst thing that can happen to us, which for the unbeliever, of course, it is. It's an absolute tragedy to die without Christ. But for the Christian, well, friends, we're to have a different perspective on those things, aren't we? A perspective that expects pain and suffering to be a normal component of life, this side of heaven. And expects that one day we will indeed die. But that doesn't mean that God has lost control. Or or that he won't use such tough times for good. Even if it's hard for us to to see that sometimes. To see the good that God has in it for us sometimes. See friends, God makes no promise to keep us from experiencing evil and suffering in this world. And that means we need a... A biblical attitude, don't we, to both suffering and death. So that when we ourselves are caught up in such painful times, such tragic times, as we will be, then we'll have the right expectation of what God will do and won't do. And the psalmist here knew that. But it didn't stop him from crying out in pain and in honesty, and expressing his deepest feelings to God of his hurt and and even his anger. 
And friends, I think we too can learn from him there, to have the right approach to God and also the right understanding of God for those times when we too will, will sometimes cry out, cry out to him with that desperate cry for help. But friends, wonderfully, that is not where the psalm leaves us, is it? Because the psalmist is able to see some other things about God as well, uh, which brings us to verses 12 to 22, and his deep hope in God. Because although it's true to say that God doesn't always give us the answers as as to why we might be suffering in a a particular way that, 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 that we are, that doesn't mean that God has got nothing to say for himself. In, in such times. And, and notice that our psalmist here, he's got a big change of direction in verse 12. Hasn't he? Did you notice that? When he suddenly says, but you, O Lord. In other words, his focus shifts, doesn't he? From himself and his problems in verses 1 to 11 to God in verse 12. And it's that that lifts his soul. It's as his focus changes from himself and his problems onto God that his soul is lifted. And there are two aspects of God that I think give the psalmist hope uh, uh, in this, this desperate time for him. And the first aspect is God's character. So notice the writer says in verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. So the psalmist's confidence here is in the fact that God is an eternal God, isn't it? A God who sits enthroned forever. A God who will never abdicate. You know, a God who will, who will never face a, a coup. A God who will be a forever king. Whose, whose renown and, and fame will endure for all generations. He can't lose control. He can't lose control of the universe and he can't lose control of our lives. But notice as well, the psalmist knows that God is glorious. Verse 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. Now we'll see in a minute what the psalmist means by that. But just notice, first of all, how glorious God is. Right? And God's glory means his, his weightiness, his, his shining brilliance, his awesome majesty, his utter holiness, meaning that he, he can't be tainted with sin. And, and friends, when it comes to evil and suffering, that means God is not to blame. Yes, he's sovereign, of course, but he's not responsible for the sin and suffering in the world because he's a God of utter glory. A God who will one day bring all those things into line with his will and and purpose. Sin will have its day. Evil will be punished, right, along with those who have committed it. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done because God is glorious. Psalmist recognizes that. But then look, a third aspect of God's character that the psalmist has hope in is that it is God's compassion. Verse 13, you will arise and have pity or compassion on Zion. And again, we'll see what the psalmist means in a minute. But notice for now that it's something he takes hope from. God is compassionate. He feels his people's pain. He genuinely grieves over suffering and over sin. Maybe you remember the times that the Lord Jesus wept in the Gospels. You know, the grave of Lazarus as he wept over the evil of death. Or, or as he wept over the stubbornness of Israel. 
Friends, God feels our pain in that way, you know? And of course he does. You know, if, if the evil and the pain and, and the suffering of the world causes us to weep sometimes, just consider how much more deeply grieved God is over it. Because he is compassionate. And, and that's what gives the psalmist uh, deep hope in his times of suffering here, doesn't it? And moves him from reflecting on his own troubles to reflecting on God's character. And uh, friends, in tough times, that's often what gets us through, isn't it? And, and friend, if you're going through one of those times at the moment, just see here that what the God who has got hold of you is like. Because this is the God who won't let you go. You know, even, why, even when we might think uh, or, or we might feel that we haven't got the strength left to hang on to him, that we just can't uh, do it, we're, that we're not even sure anymore that he's still there, whilst we might lose our grip on him for a while, he never loses his grip on us. And it's actually often afterwards, isn't it? After the period of pain that we're able to look back and, and see how he kept us, you know, even in those darkest of times. But friends, if we've got eyes to see it at the time, then God's unchanging, God's glorious, God's compassionate nature, well, that can give us strength as, as we go through a tough time. But look, it's not just God's character uh, that, that gives the writer hope here, but it's also God's plans. Did you notice that? And we can see those plans in verses 13 to 22. Um, because um, throughout the, 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 those verses, the psalmist talks about God restoring the hopes of Zion. Did you pick that up? Verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. Or again in verse 16, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute, doesn't despise their prayer. And it's tempting here to kind of think that's simply referring to the, you know, the rebuilding of the physical Jerusalem after its destruction by the, the Babylonians back in the 6th century. Um, if you remember the story, um, the people of Israel were exiled, weren't they, to Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's possible that the psalmist here lived at that time and, and that that provides the background for the psalm. Um, and, and if you remember the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, it was a pretty much a non-event, wasn't it? Writers like Nehemiah and, and Ezra are left disappointed at, at the failure of the people to get their hearts right with God and, and Jerusalem remains a kind of war-torn city which means that the hopes and the aspirations of our psalmist here, well, they could never have been fulfilled in the physical return of, of Israel to, 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 uh, to its land. But, but actually, when you look at verse 18 onwards, you find something much bigger in, in, in its scope. Let this be recorded, verse 18, for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Verse 19, he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to see those, uh, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship 
the Lord. So the psalmist is talking there about a future generation, isn't he? That, that, that will see peoples and kingdoms gathering together to worship the Lord. That never happened in Israel's time, really, did it? But actually, of course, there is something that the Bible tells us will happen that will fulfill those verses, and that's when Christ returns and brings all his people together in his place, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, when, when we will stand together as people from all nations praising and glorifying God together. Now, of course, when the psalmist writes about this, he's, he's writing with, with the eye of faith, isn't he? He's, 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 uh, he's writing it towards things that are yet unseen for him. But we know more, of course, you know, with our, with our New Testament glasses on. Which means, friends, that we have cause for even greater confidence than the psalmist did here. That God's promises cannot fail. That his plans cannot be frustrated. Now, why is that so important for those of us who are going through hard times? Well, because the psalmist is reminding us that this is not the end. That there is a better, there's a brighter future to come. That we need to be living in the light of now. And shaping our perspective on the tough times that we're facing. Because yes, we might be going through a, 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 a period of darkness now, but friends, it won't always be like that. Because this day is coming. Do you see, this day when the Lord will rebuild Zion, verse 16, this day when he will appear in his glory, this day when the name and praise of the Lord will be declared in Zion, verse 21, it's coming. So friends, we might not be able to see what God is doing right now, that might seem mysterious to us. It might seem confusing to us. But friends, we can be assured of the fact that his plans will not fail. <laughs> that one day he will wipe away every tear and mourning will be replaced with joy and pain will be replaced with, with deep comfort and grief and anger will be replaced by love and mercy and all their, their fullness. That much we do know. <laughs> and friends, that is... That is real encouragement for us to press on through our present pain, isn't it? Because Jesus is rebuilding Zion through his death and resurrection. He's, he's building a people for himself. A, a, a people made up of all kinds and ages and races and backgrounds. And, and on whose return, verse 22, all peoples and kingdoms will see him for who he is. And will gather to worship him. That's the deep hope that our psalmist has here, isn't it? And it's not a hope that comes from knowing why he's facing this particular period of suffering, is it? It's a deeper hope that comes when having cried out in his pain to God and, and brought it to him with, with honesty... He then shifts his focus away from his pain in order to focus on God, on God's character and God's plans. And that's what lifts his soul. There's a final thing I'd love us to see here, and that is a definite answer to prayer. 
in verses 23 to 28. Because when we get to those final verses, it kind of looks as though the psalmist is, is sort of slipping back into his depression again and, and his sickness again, doesn't it? It looks as though he's pleading with God not to shorten his days, verse 24, uh, or, or that he's kind of repeating truths that he's already expressed about God. His, his years endure through all generations, verse 24. So we might be expecting that verses 25 to 28, those final few verses, are going to carry on in the same vein and sort of continue to be the, the prayer of the afflicted psalmist. But actually, there's a surprise here. Because Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament quotes verses 25 to 28. But it says that ultimately, those words are the words of God making a promise to his Messiah, to his Son, the Lord Jesus. In other words, Hebrews 1 teaches us that yes, this psalm expresses the, the pain, the suffering of a real man thousands of, of years ago, the psalmist. But what the psalmist didn't know when he wrote it was that his experience of pain and suffering would be fulfilled in an ultimate sense, in the deepest way possible, by the Lord Jesus. And so when you look back through the psalm, seeing that the whole thing in an ultimate sense is about Christ, well, that puts it in a whole new light, doesn't it? For he is the one who suffered all those things in in verses 1 to 11, the physical pain, the lack of sleep, the hunger, the trauma of people betraying him and and attacking him. And most of all, the God-forsakenness that the psalmist felt but that Christ really did experience on our behalf. And then what is said about God in verses 25 to 28 is ultimately spoken about Jesus, that he is the one who laid the foundations of the earth, verse 25. And that whilst the heavens will perish, verse 26, and wear out like a garment, yet the Lord Jesus Christ will remain and his years will have no end. And friends, that's ultimately how the psalmist's prayer for help is answered, isn't it? It's answered because in Christ we have someone who died our death. Someone who stepped into our shoes. Someone who's done what's necessary to deal with all the pain and suffering in the world. As he died on the cross. So that we don't need to. So that all evil and pain will be defeated for all time. And it's his death and resurrection that guarantees that the the wonderful work of God to renew the whole world, to rebuild Zion, to, to bring God's people to God's perfect place to be with him forever. That's why the psalm ends, I think, on that glorious note of verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. That's what awaits us, friends. We will live in God's presence with no tears and no pain and no sadness and no evil and no regrets. And all of that is achieved for us through the work of Christ. So you see, friends, the psalm here doesn't give us all the answers to our pain and suffering now. Indeed, we won't get all the answers this side of heaven. But it does point us to God's remedy for a suffering soul, doesn't it? 
because it tells us to come to him in our pain and express our feelings to him, whatever they are. He can take it and he loves us. And then to refocus ourselves away from simply our pain and problems and focus on him. Focus on his character. Focus on his plans. Because they're perfect and they're trustworthy. And we can bank our hope in them. And then we need to see the real answer to our prayers. Which is Jesus Christ. The one to whom this psalm points. The one who suffered and died for us. The one who walked our path and knows our pain. And who will bring us home to be with him forever. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that although you don't give us um, all the answers to the, the why questions that we often ask in our pain, yet you do invite us to bring our pain to you. And we thank you that this psalm gives us words to do that. It teaches us how to cry out to you. Thank you too that it assures us of your faithfulness to us through our suffering, that your character and your purposes are are trustworthy and true and, and will culminate in that eternal future that awaits us when we will dwell with you and, and where every tear and every pain and, and, and all sadness and regret will be no more. Father, speed that day, we pray, and help us to live now through whatever suffering you send us in the light of that day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.